This evening we are starting our new series in the book of Zechariah and we are looking at the first initial verses this evening. Introductory thought and a question. One of the great questions of life is how do we start again? And it's a question that I'm sure we have asked ourselves at different points of times. When there have been uh, situations that have uh, sort of messed up our lives, situations that have messed up our dreams, whether it is broken marriages or broken friendships or broken dreams. And you know, we say, Lord, this has happened now. You know, I don't want to live in this past what has happened. I want to move on. The question then comes in, how do we start again? Now, this is a question that was uh, pressing hard upon the people of Judah in the time of this particular book that is written. This is called as a post-exilic book. In other words, it is written after they have come back from exile. Seventy years they have been in captivity. Now they have come back. Now they are starting all over again. And the question comes in, how do we start all over again? They had a broken relationship with God. There was a broken covenant. Now they have come back to the other land from far off Babylon. Here's a new generation that has come in. And the question they are asking is, how do we start again? So the opening passage of this book clues us into the approach this prophet takes to answer this question. <laughs> okay. If you notice, Zechariah points out to the Lord. And three times in the first two verses, he confronts them with the name, the Lord Almighty. So in order to deal with the past, therefore with the present and the future, he says the people have to return to God. The power to heal what is broken, to start again what is ended, and to rise up raise up what is cast down is always and only found in the Lord. So no matter what situation you have gone through in the past, this evening as we look at this particular book, start the study on this particular book. Let this be another you know, question that we maybe have asked or is there in the back of our minds to say, I want to start anew. Where do I start from? And before all the prophetic visions and everything that goes on in this book, the starting point, if you were to say, is to come back to God. Come back to God. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. So that's the starting point. How do I start off again? Come back to the foot of the cross. Start from there again. You know? It's a restart. You know? If you notice when you know, our computer breaks down, I mean, our computers have different problems, you know, they would often say, do a fresh restart, you know, clean up and let it start from the beginning. And that's what Zechariah is trying to tell the people of God at that time and each one of us as well. How do I restart, you know, first step, come back to God and be in an act of repentance. So three reasons why <laughs> we should study the book of Zechariah. Number one, Zechariah is the most major of the minor prophets. If you notice, there are 12 minor prophets. And this is the biggest, you know, if you notice, the longest number of chapters you know, compared to the other minor prophets. So Zechariah is the longest of the 12. And 
but he's also the richest, most elegant, and most Christological. In other words, there's a lot of references in this particular book about Jesus. And if you notice, the early Christian, the early church, you know, recognized this, and they quoted the book of Zechariah everywhere in the New Testament. Every passage is like this, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. They weighed out to, as my price 30 pieces of silver. They will look on me, him whom they have pierced. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be you know, scattered. All these famous phrases come from the book of Zechariah. Apart from this, there are 67 other places in the New Testament where Zechariah is either quoted or alluded to. And Revelation is definitely more influenced by Zechariah than by any other minor prophet. So the New Testament and our writers saw Jesus everywhere in Zechariah. And this is the reason why we must study the book of Zechariah, because it's speaking about Jesus. Okay, So that's the first reason. Second reason, Zechariah's massively important chapter in the unfolding story of the Bible. In most of the minor prophets, important Old Testament themes of kingship, priesthood, temple, are all been traced out or mentioned. But in the book of Zechariah, you know, this concept or thoughts of kingship and priesthood or temple are pushed together to the next level, if you were to say. Take, for example, in chapter 6, verses 9 to 15, we read about Jehoshadak, the high priest, who suddenly crowned king. Now, this is quite different from the rest of the Old Testament, isn't it? You know? The king was different, the priest was different, but here suddenly, you know, these two different offices in Israel have now become one. Why? Because he's taking it further and prophesying about how in the end, one man, the Lord Jesus, will be both priest as well as king. Thirdly, <laughs> preaching Zechariah would help us to glorify, to glorify our king for the work that he has done to save us. In other words, when we are able to see Jesus through the eyes of the prophet Zechariah, then we are able to understand what God has done for us. Oftentimes, a biblical passage, you know, isn't really to tell us to do something, but to look back and see what God has done, to see what God has done. And that's the message of Zechariah. And my prayer is that as we study this book, our hearts will stand in awe, in gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus, who is the crowned priest and the slaughtered and the resurrected king. Now, let's go to the context. <laughs> Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah, they were together. Their ministry began, Haggai and Zechariah's prophetic ministry began in 520 BC, some 20 years after the Jews first returned from exile in Babylon. Earlier prophets had promised a glorious restoration, which some of the minor prophets have spoken of. And the last book before the exile, Zephaniah, promised the return and the restoration of Israel's fortunes after exile. Now, these guys have come back. Okay, They have come back, they returned to Jerusalem. And when Zechariah writes this, the reality 
or what is happening is far short of their expectations. That's what the earlier minor prophets had spoken about. They have come back now. Hey, but it's not like that. It's not like that. If you notice, Haggai speaks about it, isn't it? <laughs> you know, they built their, their own houses. They built the temple. You know, they put money into their pockets, but it did not last. And Haggai asked this question, why, why, why? Think for a moment. So here they are going through those situations of disappointment, disillusionment, despondency, and equally guilt as well. How do I start over again? This is what my expectation was when I said yes to God. But this is what has happened. But I realized it was my problem. It was my mistake. I agree. I repent. What do I know do next? How do I start all over again? <laughs> so Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi form a triad which is called as the post-exilic prophets because obviously they were written after their exile. During the exile, they had spent 70 years in Babylon and Persia and they returned to their land greatly reduced in number. Only about 42,000 came back to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And when they came back, what did they see? They saw a picture of absolute desolation. The little cities in the heartland of Judah lay in ruins. Jerusalem had been destroyed. You know, a lot of rubble in the streets. Walls had been broken down. They had not been repaired. And in the middle of Jerusalem stood the burned out hulk of the temple, which had been left behind by Nebuchadnezzar and his troops. Think for a moment. You come back. The prophets have said, go back. You know, you have recited. Yes, small number. But when they came back, this is what they see. So it was definitely a difficult time. You know. It would have been definitely a very discouraging time. Why discouragement? Remember, the city walls lay in ruins. In the ancient Near East, walls were critical to a city because that's what protected them from any invasion, invasion from outside. And for the city walls to be broken down was a great disgrace to the people who were living there. Of the, temp uh, of the Jerusalem was a conspicuous absence of the temple. Seventeen years earlier, the initial work had started, foundations were laid, but then the work had stopped and it was aborted. And an uncomplete building, unfinished building. You'd say, hey, what happened? Isn't it? It's an embarrassment to the people. And resumption of the work has started now in September. 520 BC and work has started but people are questioning will this continue on will there be problems thirdly the leadership of the province was in a state of flux Zerubbabel had been appointed as a provincial governor only months before and they would have questions what this leadership would bring if you notice these three scenarios city in total rambles and everything you see rubble all around if you come back and say i've come back home you know think for a moment you know you left your home and you come back after a long time you know back to your land and you find everything is just broken down and then you have new leadership and then you wonder hey, you know how are they going to handle all this and that which you are looking forward for for the temple right in the middle is not there it is all just burnt out. 
I'm sure your heart would have definitely been broken down. And in this scenario, God sends Zechariah. Remember the name Zechariah means what God remembers, isn't it? God remembers. So when people were living in a state of things that have just broken down in their lives, and people are wondering, hey, how am I going to start all over again? God says, remembering. Okay. Now, we talk hear a lot of talk these days about deconstruction and reconstruction. Okay. <laughs> deconstruction, they talk about, okay, I'm deconstructing my Christian faith. What I thought about didn't work. You know, and now I'm going to reconstruct my faith. But oftentimes, they've just gone off totally off track. But when we have know what the Lord has done, know who he is, and you have walked away, and you have lived your own life, and now you say, no, I'm sorry, Lord, I want to get back on the right track. This is how my life has been. I don't want it to be like this anymore. And sit down in the midst of that rubble and think, will I really be able to start over all again? And in this situation, the Lord comes to us even this evening and saying, yes, I'm sending you Zechariah to remind you that God remembers. He has not forgotten you. Remember, he doesn't forget his children. He takes them through hardships, yes, but for a purpose. And he says, I remember. Now, a quick overview before we go into the verses this uh, evening. Zechariah's prophecy is divided into four major units. The first six verses of chapter 1 are an introductory section, which was delivered between verses 9 and 10 of Haggai chapter 2. And this is where, if you read Haggai and Zechariah uh, together in this context, you know, it would make so much more sense. In Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 1, it reads, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet. Now, verse 9 of Haggai chapter 2 ends a prophecy delivered on the 21st of the 7th month and verse 10 begins on the 24th of the 9th month in the second year of Darius. So, if you notice, verse 9 speaks about the 7th month, verse 10 speaks about the 9th month. And if in case you ask, hey, what happened on the 8th month? Oh, read Zechariah. Zechariah says, what happened on the 8th month? So, Zechariah began his ministry just about a month before Haggai delivered his third message. So they are working hand in hand and are together, giving the message to these people, a message of hope, a message of strength. The second section is built around a series of eight visions that Zechariah saw from chapter 1, verse 7, through to chapter 6. Chapter 7 and 8 are Maybe two years after the visions, you, know, you have a response that is given to questions that people ask. And the final section, chapter 9 to the end of the book till chapter 14, is a series of apocalyptic visions, which takes us way into the end times. You know? When I say way, right now, you know, we are living in the end times, but for the people, you know, to that generation to whom it was written, it was way down the line. You know? But these are the days that we are living in, which shows us the future of Israel, the end of the nations, and also, if you notice, those chapters are very much like the book of Revelation. So the first six verses, that's what we are going to do this evening, 
is an introduction not only to the first chapter okay or to the start off of the eight night visions but to the entire prophecy of the book of zechariah and the gist of this message is this do not repeat the disobedience of your fathers but rather learn from past experience and that's the starting point for our study this evening what has happened in the past okay learn from that past experience don't live in that past experience move on how do i start up all over again come back return and then you find when you obey the lord remembers and does his work so let's look at the verses this evening from verse 1 onwards in the eighth month in the second year of darius the word of the lord came to zechariah son of berechiah son of edo the prophet this is the, if you were to say the title or the super an inscription <coughs> so the book of zechariah begins by you know opening up or setting the scene as it were and it does this by this dating method now darius was the persian king who succeeded cambyses and cyrus now in 539 bc cyrus decreed that the judean exiles in babylon would return to jerusalem and rebuild the temple but however after an initial attempt to rebuild the temple work came to a standstill and the date in this was some 20 years later in bc 520 and this is the eighth month two months after the temple rebuilding had commenced now look at the you know, the timing of the prophecy in the eighth month of the second year eighth month of the second year remember we shared those verses about you know uh, uh, from the book of hagai how this fits in okay seventh month eighth month ninth month and you know, these months are you know, exactly together so hagai and zechariah are dovetailing together now if you compare these two and the dating if you notice in old testament the dating is always been done according to the israelite kings okay this king first year of his reign second year of his reign things like that but here the dating is done in keeping with the reign of a non believing king if you were to say okay their prophecies are dated according to the gentile monarch darius now a question may ask why why <coughs> the reason is because the times of the gentiles were then in progress now israelites have been taken into captivity now the next line has started off and the times of the gentiles run from the reign of nebuchadnezzar who was called king of kings to the reign of jesus who is the king of kings and the lord of lords so this is why you know, in this intertestamental period just at the end you know this is introduced old testament it was kings and the israelites that is how the timing was calculated now before the new testament or before this church age if you were to say this introduction of timing according to this you know uh, king darius that's the reason tells us you know the word of the lord came the word of the lord came that's the identification of the source you know it all starts with god you know god breathed upon the prophets god laid upon the hearts of the prophets this is the word of god this is not they are cooking up a message they were convinced that this 
has been they were called by god to give a message to the people now look at the identification of the name him itself okay of zechariah okay the prophet zechariah is known outside this book you know for his key role he played along with haggai in rebuilding the temple we have spoken about that his genealogy places him in a priestly family okay son of berakah son of edo okay now if he is the zechariah son of berakah then he was later murdered between the temple and the altar now ezra only speaks about zechariah son of edo but here in the book of zechariah you have a longer one son of berakah son of edo now nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 16 identifies zechariah as the incumbent head of the priestly house of edo thus edo was the ancestor after whom a particular line of priests was named and zechariah the prophet was a descendant of edo and we cannot decide how many generations were there in between when they say son of so and so it does not necessarily mean the immediate you know and a father or the immediate son but it is like you know number of generations in between can be missed out the bible does not mention the berakah this berakah elsewhere <coughs> and as a result you know he could very well have been zechariah's father <coughs> now the generations that are included in zechariah's name correspond to three generations of god's people the pre-exilic generation represented by edo a generation late in the exile represented by berakah and the present generation of zechariah so these three generations past present and future and god puts it all together and gives us a very wonderful message what is the message the name zechariah means you know god remembers means he takes care of or he watches over us and uh, this word remember in uh, hebrew is a very powerful word it's a word that god uses when he says he remembered noah and his family jesus remembered the thief on the cross you know basically it means that he has heard your cry he has felt your need and he has answered you god remembers past present future god remembers now the name berakah means god blesses god blesses and the name edo means at the appointed time isn't it so beautiful if you put all these three things together it would be god remembers and blesses you at the appointed time now when you have a question things have happened in the past you're in the present now you're looking into the future where do i start come back to god and god says i remember i will bless you at the appointed time now verses 2 and 3 says the lord was very angry with your fathers and you will say to them so says the lord of hosts return to me declares the lord of hosts and i will return to you says the lord of hosts okay the call to an immediate repentance now here these individuals have come back you know from captivity they looked forward for expectations of their uh, now post exilic uh, prophets who spoke to them and now they are saying things are in such shattered state in that setup you know the word of encouragement is repent <laughs> now you may say 
Is that any encouragement at all? Given the situation, we may have expected God to speak a word of great expect, you know, uh, encouragement. He said, don't worry, I'm there with you. But that's what he's already given through that name, isn't it? That's the reason for that name. I remembered, you know, I will bless you at the appointed time. Remember, Hebrew names have a lot of meaning. And then he says, you know, how will I bless you? What will be the appointed time when you are willing to repent and turn around? So before what God is going to speak about the blessings of the visions and the promises that are mentioned in the book of Zechariah, he asked Zechariah to preach a message of repentance. Yes, the visions of hope will come later on, you know, but that is for another time, maybe three or four months later. But right now, God is saying, of reflection. Get into this time of repentance. Get into this time of a recommitment. And that's the message for us even this evening. What has happened in the past? You're living in the present, asking what is going to happen to me in the future. The Lord says, I remember, I will bless at the appointed time. But he's saying, this is the time. The present is the time in which you need to reflect and repent and come back. So that all that God is in store for you, the best that is yet to come, can be fulfilled. Okay. Verse 2 starts off by saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Remember, sin incurs God's wrath. He's saying, very angry. Now, why does it put in, in, our, in our English translation, very angry? If you notice in, in Hebrew, you know, the Hebrew word for anger is used twice you know, in this verse. Okay, One in its verbal form and one in its noun form. And this is why, you know, when it was translated into English, instead of saying, you know, angry, angry, you know, it has been put in as very angry to help us to understand this, you know, doubling effect of how angry God is. And why was he so much angry? Because it was years of idolatry, <clears throat> years of syncretism, years of hypocritical worship, years of moral failure, years of exploitation of the poor. Years of unapproved alliances with other nations and corrupt leadership had stretched the Lord's to its breaking point. Look here, this is my present scenario. This is what I feel right now. Yes, I promise, I remember, I will bless you. But right now, there is something that you need to do. And he says, why am I angry? Because of your fathers, because of their fathers. Now, who were these fathers? They were the ones on whom the judgment of the exile fell. Okay. Now, the phrase, your fathers, appears 22 times in Jeremiah, 8 times in Ezekiel. And the prophets constantly made a connection to the judgment that came upon the people. In other words, you know, this link up, if you were to say, indicates that the exile, God sending them into exile, was a result or an outworking of God's great anger. <laughs> yes, God was patient. Remember when you study all the passages in the Old Testament, the historical accounts, you know, they thought they could do whatever they want to and get away with it. But God was patient, patient, patient. They thought, you know, our God is the greatest, so we will never lose the battle. No matter whatever we do, God will bless us. But God says, no. Nothing doing, you know, it is enough, enough is enough. And when they were sent into captivity, they got so shattered 
They thought, we thought our God will never do something like this. And sometimes we think like that, isn't it? That God is our father, he's such a loving father, he will, no problem, he will overlook, no problem, he will overlook. And then suddenly, when discipline comes into our lives, then we are shattered. That is an expression, if you were to say. It is that loving anger which sends a person into captivity so that they learn the lesson. <coughs> and only a repentance can restore that person back to that relationship that has been broken. That's why the Lord says, therefore, say, them, say to them, thus says the Lord, return to me and I will return to you. Now, think of the another link up. He says, God remembers, he will bless you at the appointed time. Then he says, I was very angry with your fathers. And then immediately he says, you know, return to me. In other words, his anger is not just for a long period of time. He says, I want you to get back to me, okay? I want you to get back to me. So look at the prophet is not dwelling on the Lord's displeasure against Israel, but goes on from there immediately to speak about God's tender love in the form of an invitation. He says, return to me, I will return to you. And that's the heart of the father, isn't it? Whether that is seen in the heart of the, you know, the father who waited for the son to get back, or the Lord himself says, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. He looks at us in a, carrying that load. He looks at us carrying that frustration. He looks at us and looks at all that has happened and you are wondering why. The Lord says, come to me. That's the invitation of love that he gives to us. <laughs> okay. So the Lord is saying, you return to me, I am going to return to you. Now, if you uh, with the prophet Haggai, Haggai was assuring his people. Haggai chapter 1 verse 13 and chapter 2 and verse 4 speaks about God's promise that I am there with you. My spirit is remaining with you. Okay. But here it seems to say, okay, return to me. I will return to you. Now, if you're living at that time, you're listening to Haggai, you're listening to Zechariah. Now, what would you understand? On one side, through prophet Haggai, God is saying, I'm there with you, you know. On the other hand, the Lord is saying through Zechariah, return to me. What is the meaning of that? The understanding primarily is when they're looking at all that has happened, the mess up that has happened, and they want to change. The Lord says, you return to me, things will change, okay. But I'm there with you. I've not abandoned you. Even in the midst of the situation in which you see chaos, in which you see destruction, when you see you know, things that are so dark are all around you and you wonder, God, are you there? Haggai says, I'm there, the Lord says. And Zechariah says, okay, recognize my presence and return to me. So their physical return to the Lord's inheritance you know, had to be matched with their spiritual return in obedience to him. You know, this is what God continues to open our eyes to. When we wonder, God, are you there? He comes along and says, I am there with you. Then we say, God, you know, what do I do next? He says, return to me. My presence has always been there with you. My presence will go before you. And he speaks about the presence in the words of you know, the Lord of hosts. This is the description of God. And this occurs three times in this verse and 53 times throughout the book of Zechariah. The Lord of hosts. 
the Lord of hosts. Speaking of this as you know, the mighty king or the mighty commander of a large you know, army. Now, again, look at yourself, look at your position. Judah at this time was a very small player, if you were to say, when it came to the Persian Empire. But Zechariah reminds the people who really is in control. Yahweh is the true king over all the earth. So when you're looking at the situation and saying, God, I'm in a minority. I don't have anything. The Lord says, I'm there with you. And then the Lord also says, who am I? I'm the Lord of hosts. The entire army belongs to me. I'm the one who is in charge. And then when we are able to see God who he is, we are able to see who we are in the light of that, then it becomes easy to return to him, isn't it? As long as we think, you know, I can't handle it, we say we'll get stuck in that position. But on the other hand, we are able to lift up our eyes and see who God is. He is the Lord of hosts. He is in charge of the mighty army. He is the one who is sovereign. And he says, you come back to me, then I will definitely bless you. Now, when you're thinking about this return, turn back. You know, the word that is used there basically means about coming back you know, to the point of departure. Or it means to have a change of loyalty. You know, saying Basically saying, look here, so far you are not responding to me as the sovereign one. You thought you were the sovereign one. You did your own thing. Now he says, return. Get back. Get your loyalty straightened out. Acknowledge me as the sovereign one in your life. <laughs> now in verse 4, he says, Do not be like your fathers to whom the earlier prophets cried out. So says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil deeds. But they did not listen. They did not give attention to me, declares the Lord. So here's there's a contrast that is spoken about rejecting the command of God. It leads to futility. We'll only have stubborn rebellion. If God's voice comes to us and we harden our hearts, Scripture says, you know, the Lord will not always strive. Your heart will always be in rebellion. <coughs> so in these short words, you know, in, chapter, in verse 4, the Lord condenses, if you were to say, you know, the gist you know, of all that the pre-exilic prophets have been speaking about, you know. The prophets told them, turn, turn, turn back to God. They did not respond. They went on their own ways. They continued to rebel, continued to worship other gods. The Lord said, okay, you know, that's what it is. So he sent them into captivity because of their stubborn rebellion. And this is where, you know, the Lord's you know, judgment comes into the people through the prophet Zechariah. And he says in the last section, but they did not listen. They did not give attention to me. They did not give attention to me. It's important. When God speaks to us, we have to listen. When God speaks to us, we have to give attention to him. Now, he says, do not be like your fathers. It's a negative contrast that is there. And what a contrast, isn't it? He says, don't be like your parents. You know? Oftentimes we tell the children, okay, follow your parents. But here the scripture is saying, don't be like your parents. Your parents were so bad, they were rebelled against God. So he says, do not be like your fathers. And this is definitely a, a sad indictment you know, against the parents. 
again today, it would be when the church goes through so much of uh, corruption, when the leadership goes through so much of corruption, when the message of repentance comes in, it will be the same. Don't be like the leaders. Don't be like all that has happened. You be different. You be different. And that's the message that Paul encouraged Timothy with also, isn't it? Even in that early church time, he says, Timothy, you're a young leader. Don't think, let anybody think little of you. You be an example. You be an example. Let it not be the elders who have been the example. Yes, if they are good example, praise God for that. You know. But if they have been bad examples, you, know, you don't follow them. You set the pace. You be the good example. Do not be like your fathers. To whom the former prophets proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. He says, Do not be like them. And he says, It's the same message that I'm giving to you now, which the earlier prophets also gave to them. The same message of return, return, return. So the earlier prophets or the former prophets most likely refers to prophets such as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah which spoke about this. Constantly, God raised this, what we call as major prophets, to speak to the people and say, this is how we are living. False teachers, false prophets were also around there, warning them, hey, don't listen. This is what they are doing. False prophets were saying, no, no, God is going to bless you. God is going to bless you. you know, Jeremiah had a tough time. When God set him out of the ministry, say, I'm asking you to go and preach. These guys are not going to listen. <laughs> Imagine starting out your ministry like that. But that's the type of an age that we live in today also, isn't it? When there are people today who say there's no you know, judgment, it's only a God blessing, blessing, blessing. Now be careful. Be careful of that. You know, The immediate response is get back, turn back to God. And the tragic closing is of a negative response is the end is so tragic. But they did not listen. They did not listen, okay, or they did not pay attention. Remember, our God is a God who speaks. He's not silent. We have to respond. This is where the constant, and if you were to say, the pressure, if you were to say, on the believer is where God speaks. You know. Today, if you hear God's voice speaking, harden not your hearts. These people heard God's voice speaking. They hardened their hearts. The result was? They were taken into captivity. Then in verses 5 and 6, we have the contrast between mortality and eternity, you know, which shows that God is faithful. What he has promised, what he said he will do, he will definitely do. <clears throat> it says, your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Now, whereas verse 4 sets for the message of the prophets and the reaction of Israel to it, the next verses reveal the consequence of their disobedience to God's people. And in order to bring the full force of how God is dealing with them, the prophet speaks about three questions, three rhetorical questions, if you notice are used here to help us, help us, help them, as well as to help us now to understand the consequence of rejecting the word of God. Fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? 
limited perspective of mortal man. We don't live on forever. You know, a lot of people in this world, they think they're going to live on forever. And they're constantly you know, talking about all that they want to accomplish, you know, on their own. They are not thinking about God in their plans. It's all, this is what I will do, this is what I will do, this is what I will do. Remember like the rich man who said, this is what I will do. I'll break down my barns, I will build bigger barns, you know, bigger barns and I will store my crops over there. And I will say, soul, your goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink and be merry. But the Lord said, hey, you're talking about many years. Tonight I will require your soul. So a lot of people live their own lives thinking that they have many years to live, you know. And then maybe later on, you know, when the time comes, when they are getting old, maybe then they will think about rectifying their ways. No, no. The scripture is saying, your fathers, where are they? And their prophets, do they live forever? And now that's he's putting both these guys together, the evil ones as well as the good ones. Your fathers, which were evil, that you know, caused great, very great anger to God. And also the prophets that gave the message to you, did they live on? He says, no. None of us lives on forever. As a result, you know, while it is still day, we must do the works that God has called us to do. <laughs> okay. Then you have the historical vindication of the word of God. But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Overtake your fathers. Now, the word overtake pictures a pursuer capturing someone who is fleeing, a hunter catching his game, or a wild animal grasping its prey. Okay. So, the forefathers were pursued and were caught by the inescapable curse of God. So, he says, when the Lord says, time is up, you know, time is up, okay. It overtakes, you know. We think we are in charge. We are on the, you know, the steering wheel. We are full throttle. We are going at full speed. You know. The Lord says, no, you know, that I will come when I will overtake. Emphasizing that he is the one who is sovereign. When he calls the shots and he says, stop, it is the end. None of us can say, I am going to prolong my life forever. You know. <laughs> then, in the last section of verse 6, it says, And they turned and they said, Just as the Lord of hosts has planned to do to us, according to our ways and to, the, to our deeds, so has he done with us. Some other translation says, Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. So here there's a confession of repentance, which brings forth the fruit of submitting to God's sovereignty. But the question would always be asked, was it too late? Was it too late? You know, here they've come back. How do they live after that? How do they live during the intertestamental period? You know, that's a question that we must definitely ask. We return to God, but how does it go on after that? Now, a couple of thoughts over that. The NIV includes this sentence within the quotation marks indicating that it is part of the prophecy, part of the oracle. The NIV also begins a new paragraph with this half verse, then they repented. Okay. In this way, the translators show that Zechariah is still addressing his audience in the second year of Darius, telling them about the previous generation's decision to repent. Thus, the audience has both negative and positive examples. The final kingdom generation that refused to repent and the exilic generation 
that did and repent and returned. Other interpreters treat this sentence as a narrative about Zechariah's audience. He invites them to repent, and so they did. Now, the Hebrew does not have any quotation marks. So, either way, whether we took it, take it as part of the message to say return, or we are taking it as a part of the message of what happened after they came and returned, the key thing over there is the emphasis on repent. So the message of Zechariah, the first six verses, is that the Lord is the one who has taken the initiative to come to his people through the prophet Zechariah to call them to a renewed relationship with them. But what do they need to do? They need to repent. Whether it was historically at that time, the first batch has come in, you know, or whether it is to the next batch that will develop from there, you know, or whether it is for our present generation, the message still remains that the foundation is definitely repentance. Where do we start? Repentance is the foundation. And if you notice, this theme of you know, <laughs> repentance comes right through the scripture, isn't it? This particular point of time, when they have come back, they are rebuilding their houses, they are rebuilding the walls, they are rebuilding the temple, they are totally involved in construction activity. The thought of repentance in this scenario may be very limited. And that's what happens today, isn't it? We are so busy building, we are so busy doing things for God, we are so busy serving this, serving that. But the Lord says, hey, that's not the important thing. The foundation is repentance. It is not what we are doing for God, because that's what they were doing. They were quite busy. But the Lord's message that comes to them is repent. Repent. The fundamental need is not a rebuilt temple, but it is definitely a renewed heart. It is definitely a renewed heart. And the true foundation of restoration is not in the stones with which they were building the temple, but the true foundation of God's work is always in repentant hearts. Think for a moment when Jesus started out his ministry in Mark chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Basically, what does it mean? The kingdom has come in. If the kingdom has come, then repentance is saying, Lord, acknowledge you as king. So far, I thought I was the king. So far, I thought I was the sovereign one. So far, I thought I was in control. But when you're speaking about a kingdom, basically, it means the one who is the head, and you are the subject. And when you say God is the king and you are the subject, what you are really acknowledging before God is, I hand over charge to you. I take off control over my life. And that is what repentance is all about, isn't it? Turning around and saying, Lord, so far I've been going this way, now I've been going that way. That's what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a new kingdom now. If you belong to the kingdom, God is your head. You need to acknowledge him. Later on, when Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, that was the message that they preached, that they should repent. And after Jesus' resurrection, it was time for them to spread the good news of the kingdom. Jesus instructed them in Luke 24, 47, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he rose up and spoke in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized, 
every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this message of repentance comes time and time again, right from Jesus starting off his ministry, down through the first century church, and it continues on through the history of the church. Think for a moment of Martin Luther, Reformation, October 31st, 1517, okay? He's said these statements. He said, our Lord and Master, when he says repent, desires that the whole of life of believers should be repentance, should be repentance. What did he mean by that? At that time, there was this scholastic view of sacramental penitence, which emphasized an isolated outward act. You pay your indulgences, you pay for this, you do this penance, you do that, oh, then you have, you know, been set free or you have got forgiveness. Now, while Luther put the stress on the inward change, which should extend right throughout life, as long as there is sin, there is definitely the need for repentance. And the same principle applies to our life as well. Like the community in Zechariah's time easily forgot that the true foundation of God's great work is always repentant hearts, even today, it is so easy to forget about repentance. And if you notice, repentance is not really a very often spoken of word today, isn't it? We want God to bless us, you know, we want to hear messages of that. But when God says repentance, it is a very strange word for a lot of people. But it should not be because that's the starting point. So where do I start? When I think of the past, when I think of the present, when I think of the future, a good foundation to be laid is repentance. Couple of application questions for us this evening. Number one, how have you seen repentance as something foundational to growth in your own spiritual life? Number two, are you accustomed to thinking of repentance as a habit? Is it something you practice daily? Number three, in what areas of your life do you need to repent? Are there specific thoughts or words or actions or attitudes that you need to turn from? Number four, what are ways that your lack of repentance adversely affects the whole church? Number five, is your church a church of repentance? How do you know? Number six, where in the scriptures do we see examples of the Lord being very angry? How should that impact our living in an awareness of the fear of the Lord? How is the fear of the Lord the beginning of all wisdom for us? And number seven, why is it so imperative to repent now. Pray together.